Turn with me to Romans chapter 2 if you have uh, your Bible. This is week 5 of our study through the book of Romans. And, uh, you know, we, we're in a book of the Bible about 90% of the time. We're always in a book of the Bible, but working our way through a specific book of the Bible. And that's because we believe that the Bible is not just some collection of interesting stories, but in fact, the uh, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, uh, life-changing Word of God spoken to us. And we believe when we go to it and the Word of God is rightly preached, we get to hear from God Himself. That's why every Sunday we open up the Bible and we, we study it together as part of our worship. Now, one thing to keep in mind as we go through this book, and that is Romans is, is a letter written to a real church uh, at a real point in history which had some real problems. So this is not, you know, nowadays we see people responding to something by way of an open letter or maybe a, a, an athlete or celebrity may take out a, a full page in a newspaper or whatever. This is, this is actually a letter written to a very specific audience. Um, it's not just some general letter to a nondescript uh, group of people. This was a letter written to a church that met in, the, in the, the city of Rome in the middle of the first century, about 57 uh, AD is when this was written. And uh, this was a church which was in the middle of a major cultural war. Now we think, and I think rightly, that we're involved in a cultural war here. The things that we stand for as Christians, the things that we believe as Christians uh, are certainly under attack. Well, the church at Rome was a church that was trying to stay strong, trying to stay together, trying to stay unified in an empire that had gone down the drain, morally speaking. So just about, you know, I'm not, I don't want you to go there mentally, but just about the worst thing that you could imagine, the worst sin that you could imagine was actually not just being practiced in ancient Rome, but was everywhere. So this was uh, the way that it was. It was a place of great moral degradation. Um, and staying together as a church was hard. Uh, staying unified as a church was no small task because you had in that church at Rome, to which Paul writes, a group, two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles just means non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles who historically really hated each other. Now you can think about, you know, maybe you look back in history, you think about some different nations at war, different groups of people that hated each other. Uh, well, this was the way that it was between the Jews and Gentiles in first century Rome. And part of that hatred was, we might say, racially or ethnically motivated. Um, part of it was caused by very different religious practices. So uh, the Jewish people worshipped one God. They were monotheistic, uh, mono one, theistic God. They worshipped one God. The Gentiles, as we've already seen, worshipped hundreds of gods, uh, there were three main ones, uh, the Capitoline Triad, but there were all kinds of other gods. So you had one group of people, the Jews, who worshipped one god, the Gentiles who worshipped hundreds of gods. Um, the Jews had all these stipulations on what they could eat and drink and certain festivals and celebrations. The Gentiles thought that was laughable. Uh, the Jews thought the Gentiles were disgusting, immoral, idolatrous people who had no, no hope of being saved. The Jews had the law which they believe was for their ethnic community. So you can just imagine pretty easily the animosity, uh, and we can even say the hatred that some Jews had for Gentiles and vice versa. And here they are 
both together in one church in, in a part of the world, in a city which really uh, has practices which go against everything the church believes. But I think, you know, it's, it's fair to say we see this, we've seen it in our own lives, we see it around us when God gets a hold of a person and brings that person to saving faith, to repentance and faith, he not only saves them from his wrath and hell and unto good works, but he saves them into a new family, a new community of people. And those people, despite their differences, uh, are called to love each other, serve each other, sacrifice for one another, cling to one another in hard times. But of course, that's not easy to do now, and it certainly wasn't easy to do then. So I want you to imagine you're part of the church in Rome, and you receive this letter from the Apostle Paul that's going to be read to the whole church. And you're gathered together on the Lord's Day, and you're a Jewish person, and you've always worshipped one God, not all the idols that the Gentiles worship. And you've always been committed to heterosexual monogamy, not the homosexual practice that you see so prevalent in the Gentile world. And you've always been careful with your speech, not given to gossip and slander that you believe the Gentiles uh, have been committed to. What do you think goes through your mind? You're, you're, you're a Jewish person. You're there, you're, you're there when the re- letter is read. What do you think is going through your mind? Well, you're looking at the Gentiles in that same church who may be seated across from you, and you're thinking, yeah, are you listening to this? Are you paying attention to this? Are you getting this? Because this was written for you. And you're excited to hear the Apostle Paul, in your estimation, putting these people in their place. And you may even motion to the nearest Gentile around you, uh, perhaps sitting on the floor across from you, and you might say, are you getting this? Are you, are you paying attention? Well, even though Paul is calling out all humanity in chapter 1, showing this, this, the state of all mankind apart from Christ, um, Paul knows that there are Jews who are having the thoughts that I just mentioned a moment ago, and so now he will turn his attention to them. Romans chapter 2, uh, we're going to cover verses uh, 1 through 11. Let me begin by reading verses 1 through 5. Here reads the word of the Lord. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So Paul begins chapter 2 by saying, Therefore, or in light of the fact that we're all sinners, we've all violated these commands. And if you were here last week, you saw a list of those a long list of those commands or vices that really we're all guilty of committing. Paul says, therefore, or in light of the fact that we're all sinners, we've all committed these sins, we've all been proud and boastful and gossipy and stubborn and disobeyed our parents and so on. He says, in light of that, none of us should 
judge each other. Now, it's very important to understand what is being said and what's not being said. How many times have you heard someone say, don't judge me, right? Or why do you have to judge me? Or it's not your place to tell another person uh, that what they're doing is wrong. Or only God can judge me. You've probably heard all of those things before. And I understand where those, come, those comments come from. No one wants to be judged. I don't want to feel judged. It's not a, a very good place to be. But is Paul saying that it's never our place to tell someone else what they're doing is wrong? I mean, he can't possibly be saying that because several times in this letter, many times in this letter, he will say to the church at Rome, the Christians at Rome, what you're doing is wrong. So he can't possibly be saying it's, it's always wrong to correct someone. In fact, in Paul's other writings, he actually commands Christians to correct other believers you know, when what they're doing is wrong. It's against the Scriptures. So what is Paul condemning here? Well, look at verse 1 again. Paul says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, why? For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. He's saying you're judging people for the same things you're doing. Now look at verse 3. Paul says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? What is Paul condemning here? It's hypocritical judging. Say it a different way. It's hypocritical self-righteousness. That is, seeing ourselves as morally superior to someone else based on the criteria that we create and establish. What Paul is saying is that it's wrong to self-righteously judge others, to judge others for the very same things that we're doing, to call someone else out for the same sin tendencies that we have. You know, last week we talked specifically about homosexuality, just again, marching through the text. And we saw from the scriptures how homosexual practice is idolatry. It's the worship of self. And we also saw that idolatry makes God very angry. But what's interesting, and I preached through three of the, the gospels, New Testament has four gospels and had a chance to preach through three of those. And what's interesting in the Gospels is that Jesus talks way more about self-righteousness than he does about sexual sin. Way more. Now that's not to diminish, of course, uh, sexual sin. Um, it's not to minimize how God feels about sexual sin or homosexuality. But we do need to readily admit that self-righteousness seems to be, at least if we're taking seriously the words of Jesus, the most destructive sin at all, of all. And here's why. This is why Paul wants these Jewish believers to know. This is our first point. Only those who recognize their sinfulness will see their need for a Savior. Paul's saying, look, you're sitting around and you're judging all the people around you, but you're doing the same thing. And because you're looking down condemning others, you've now got yourself up to a place, such an elevated place, you don't even see your need for a Savior. See, unless we understand that we're sinful, we're sinners. We, we don't really believe that we need a Savior. We hear from every direction, it seems, um, that we're, you know, we're really good people at the core. You know, we're, we're sort of naturally good people, and if things aren't going well, we just have to look deep inside and find that inner goodness and inner beauty. It's a message we hear everywhere, but we don't really believe it, frankly. 
there was, a, uh, there was a psychiatric technique that gained a lot of steam in the 90s, 1990s. I don't know if people still do it or not. But, um, and what the psychiatrist would do with a person, especially somebody who's experienced trauma um, or really low self-esteem, they would say, okay, I want you to go and find a, a large mirror. And I want you to look in the mirror. And I want you to bring with you some st- sticky notes. And then I want you to, around the, the outline of your head, you know, of course, as you're looking in the mirror, I want you to put sticky notes like this. You're perfect. You're flawless. You're beautiful. You're faultless. And go all around your head putting those things. And, and what was interesting was, is psychiatrists thought that, that you know, immediately this caused a really, it was a really helpful benefit. It caused a, a great uh, sort of a boost to the person's self-esteem. But a study was done about 12 years later on this particular technique. And what it was found, what found, uh, the study found was that even though this caused a very short and immediate boost in self-esteem, this, this exercise, those who participated in it found themselves spiraling downward to an even lower low than when they started. They just, it was like, it was kind of like eating a box of donuts, right? A dozen donuts. There was this immediate sort of rush but then this cataclysmic low, I mean, you just absolutely just, just you know, cascaded downward. Um, now, why would that be the case? Well, because the people who were writing those sticky notes around the outline of their head in the mirror, they went to bed at night and they knew their thoughts. They knew they weren't perfect. They knew their actions. They knew about the number of times they'd lashed out in anger. They knew about the number of times they had lusted or, or been selfish or self-centered or whatever it was. And they thought, these things can't possibly be true. We know we're not perfect. So what do we do? Well, we, we judge the people around us to make ourselves feel better. She's such a gossip. I'm glad I'm not like her. He's so self-centered. I, I don't know how people deal with him. She's having sex before marriage. I would never do that. He gets so angry. I just don't see how a person could be that way. He's such a lazy dad. He doesn't even do nightly devotions with his family. Well, in first century Rome, that particular self-righteousness was fueled by racial, ethnic, and religious prejudice that caused the Jews to look down on, and as I mentioned before, in some cases even hate the Gentiles who were part of the same church. And Paul will have none of it. He knows how self-destructive self-righteousness is. Uh, He knows that it causes us not just to believe the lie that we're better than other people, which certainly it does, but it also causes us to believe the lie that we can be good enough in ourselves to earn a spot in heaven. Which means then, we don't need a Savior, if that's the case. Because you know what, I'm doing fine on my own, thank you very much. Paul says to those who do that, who hypocritically judge others, by, he says they are storing up wrath for themselves. What a terrifying thought. Now we saw in the first week of this study, the second week, we saw that God's wrath is, is being poured out. So it's not just a future or eschatological thing. But Paul says in the future, Those who judge self-righteously in this way will experience a terrible judgment filled with wrath and fury. Nothing could be worse than this. Now, for the sake of clarity, 
The warning not to judge one another is not a command to dispense, as I mentioned, with all loving correction in the church, but a caution or a warning to put aside our self-righteous hypocrisy. There is a place for gentle correction in the church. There is a place for humbly coming alongside a wayward brother or sister in Christ. There's a place for pointing out the sinful action of a fellow Christian. The scriptures are so clear on this, so clear. This is what it means to be, it's part of what it means to be included in this spiritual family, the family of God. And not just pointing out error, but receiving correction. So it's not as though, you know, we're just the ones always pointing out the error in other people. We have to also be willing to receive correction when others bring it to our lives. You know, there's a there's some areas of life where it's kind of easy to measure our progress. You know, we, we all want to know, how are we doing? Am I, am I moving forward or am I moving backward? And if you want to measure your progress financially, you can, of course, you can look at your financial statement or your net worth or whatever it is. You want to, if you're a student, you want to judge how, you know, determine how you're doing academically. You, you look at your progress report or your grade card or whatever it is. Health-wise, you know, you can, you can go get some labs drawn and you compare those against the previous years and are things better or worse. And if you're doing a project at home, you know, it's kind of easy to judge the progress because you, you, you look and say, are things different than they were a month ago or a year ago and so on. So in some areas of life, it's, it's pretty easy, you know, to determine how am I doing? But it's not as easy spiritually, is it? For a variety of reasons. Uh, sanctification, God conforming us into the image of his son, it takes place over a long period. So you can't really look at a very small snippet. But the other thing is like, how, I mean, what do I even look at? You know, you can look at your activity. Well, I read the Bible more than I used to, or I'm in church more than I used to, or I pray more. And those are good things. But they don't necessarily indicate spiritual progress. You want to know, I'll give you a very one clear marker. You want to know if you're progressing spiritually, you're growing spiritually. How do you respond when you're corrected? Nothing is going to tell you more, I think, than that. How do you respond when someone says, hey, what you're doing, it, it, it's not biblical. I mean, you're a brother in Christ and I see what you're doing and it just doesn't match with Scripture. Do you, do you pout? Do you throw a fit? Do you give that person a cold shoulder? Do you take a more passive-aggressive approach? What do you do? Paul says that when he says do not judge, he's talking about hypocritical judgment this doesn't mean there shouldn't be loving correction that takes place in the church. The point again is not don't ever say anything to another believer. If you see them caught in sin, we're actually commanded to do that. The point is self-righteousness is a fatal disposition that every single one of us is naturally inclined toward. Paul says to these Jewish church members at Rome, do you really think that God will stand idly by while you Judge other people for the very same things you're doing. And then Paul says in verse 4, look at verse 4 again, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I love that verse. Absolutely love that verse. First, there's a warning, uh, which... It's to the Jewish audience, but certainly to us as well. Don't presume on the grace of God. In other words, don't think that because of your lineage or the family you came from or your race or your ethnicity or uh, you know, your history or whatever it is that you actually deserve God's acceptance. 
The ESV reads, which is what I just read, and this is what we preach from, the English Standard Version says, do you presume upon the riches of God's kindness? But I actually prefer the NIV version. I think it really captures it better. Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness? That's really the gist here. Do you show contempt for the kindness of God? Do you despise the grace of God by believing that you actually deserve God's approval? A place in heaven because the family you came from? This is one of the most dangerous places we can be. Showing contempt for the grace of God. Because not only is it arrogant and proud, but it utterly ignores what God's grace is meant to do. Paul says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. One of my favorite statements in the Bible. What's the kindness? Well, when, when the scripture talk about God's kindness here, uh, it's talking about, first of all, God's patience with unbelievers. So in other words, God is actually delaying the return of Christ so that more the, those who are unbelievers can repent and believe and be brought into the family of God. But typically, generally speaking, when Paul or the other New Testament writers talk about the kindness of God, they're talking about God's saving grace. Titus, right? Says, you, Paul says, you've done all of these things. You're guilty before God. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. So Paul's talking about, he's talking about immediately God's patience and, and, and not returning to judge the world. But he's also talking about God's saving grace. And he's saying God's saving grace, God's goodness, God's kindness in that way is what leads us to repentance. It leads us to turn from our sin and to turn to Jesus. New Testament scholar John Murray says this, the assertion that the goodness of God leads to repentance must not be weakened to mean merely that it points us to repentance. The word lead must be given its true force of conducting. In other words, here's our second point. Only the grace of God can soften the hard heart and move someone to despise sin and treasure Jesus. That's the only thing. We talk a lot about this law, gospel, law, grace distinction. And uh, the, the, the idea of the law of God will be a very important concept in the book of uh, Romans. And in fact, it's going to come up in chapter, later in chapter 2, then in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8. So the law comes up a lot. And the law of God, you know, can be a confusing subject. How does it apply to us today? And let's be frank, there are a lot of very strange laws in the Bible about wearing stuff and, you know, cutting your beard at certain, you know, places and not eating certain things. And so there's a lot of, you know, unusual laws in there. And so we have to ask the question, you know, what, what, is, what does this mean when we talk about the law? Well, um, we're going to talk a lot about the law of God through this series, but for the sake of this discussion, let me just say this. Broadly speaking, now sometimes the law is Mosaic law, and, but broadly speaking, we talk about law, we're talking about all the commands in Scripture. So anything that says do this or don't do that is under the category of law. In fact, uh, the 20th century Dutch theologian Louis Burkhoff explained it this way. The law comprises everything in Scripture which is a revelation of God's will in the form of command or prohibition. So anything that says do this, don't do that, 
You know, you shall, you shall not, that fits under the area of law. Of course, we have a lot of, there are a lot of commands in the scripture, right? Love God, love your neighbor. Do not use profane or unwholesome talk. Be kind to one another. Do not gossip. Forgive one another. Flee from lust. Uh, help the weak. Do not murmur or complain. And there are actually literally hundreds of commands. These make up what we call the moral law of God. And the law of God is good. The law of God is beautiful and right and pure and true. It flows from the very character of God. The problem is not the law. The problem is our sinful hearts. And because our hearts are sinful, do this and don't do that never softens a sinful hard heart. Only the grace of God, only the goodness of God, only the love of God will move us to obey God out of love. To the contrary, and we're going to get to this later, uh, but to the contrary, Paul says the law actually only incites rebellion. Now, if you don't believe this, go home this afternoon and demand to one of your kids, do this now. And yeah, Luke's already thinking, don't do that, Dad, because I'm not going to do it. No, it's, you know, you, you, when somebody hears that, it, it, it causes us to rebel, right? If I, you know, if I go home and I say to one of my kids, look, get up and do this now. I get to look like, are you talking to me? That's what I expect. Now they'll maybe eventually do it, right? Shaking their head, no. Um, no, I mean, <laughs> but that, that's what law does. Commands by themselves, they actually stir up our stubbornness. Well, Paul says the kindness of God is what leads us to repentance. Again, that kindness, again, is talking about God's saving grace. See, God could have left us alone here to fend for ourselves on this earth, but He has poured out His grace on us in so many ways. Of course, everything you have is because God has given it to you. Do you know every single ability that you have to do anything is because God has given you that ability? Just out of His kindness. Not because you deserve it, but because God is a kind and generous God. We all have different gifts and abilities and skills. Whatever you can do is because of the kindness of God. So God pours out his grace on us in that way. But of, co- of course, most arrest- arrestingly, he pours out his grace by sending his son who would come and live a perfect sinless life and die on the cross for our sin. I, I ruffled a couple of feathers last week. I, wasn't, I didn't do it intentionally uh, when I said that heaven had to be earned and we could never earn it. And what I meant was, and I I tried to explain it, was we were created to glorify and enjoy God. We were created to obey God. We are actually made to honor and obey God. And that was part of the covenant that God established with humanity at creation. Do this, and you shall live. Do this, and you shall live. That was what was required for everlasting life. Do this and live. Uh, Total and complete obedience to all God's commands. And God actually reiterated those same stipulations out at Mount Sinai. Do this and you shall live. And what does Exodus 34 tell us? And Moses sprinkled blood on the people according to their word, and they said, all this we will do. Well, then Jesus comes along, and after his death and resurrection, when he's in the upper room with his disciples, 
Jesus doesn't say do this and live. He doesn't sprinkle any blood on anybody's head as a reminder of that covenant sanction. What does he do instead? He says, my body broken for you. My blood shed for you. He doesn't say do this and live. What does he say on the cross? It is finished. It is finished. In other words, I've satisfied the stipulations of the covenant, which are complete and perfect obedience. So what I meant when I said heaven has to be earned is based on that covenant with mankind at creation, the only way for us to get to heaven is to live a perfect, sinless, fully obedient life. But none of us has done that. But when we trust in Jesus, it's not just our sin debt that's paid, praise God for that, but also, so every sin we've ever committed is actually forgiven by God, forget, forgotten by God, we could say. But we're also, not just our debt's not paid, we're also credited with all the riches of Christ Jesus. Everything Jesus earned by his obedience is ours by faith, including heaven, everlasting life, glory and honor. All of that had to be earned, but Jesus earned it for us. And this is all because of the kindness of God. The good works that we were created to do that Adam failed to do, Jesus did in our place. Earning for us everlasting life that is ours by faith alone. If you've trusted in Jesus, God's brought you to a place where you've turned from your sin and you've put your faith in Jesus. You have not only had your sin debt removed, praise God for that, so that God doesn't He doesn't hold your sin against you. But you've also been credited with the obedience of Christ. So you were credited with the obedience of Christ. Jesus was credited with our disobedience and then died for our disobedience. Why? For one reason, the kindness of God. It was because of nothing you've done or could ever do, nothing I could ever do. We are justified, declared righteous by God, granted eternal life by faith alone. So you remember that? illustration, of course you do, it was like 11 minutes ago. We're about looking in the mirror and putting the sticky notes, right? So the person says, well, I'm, but I know I'm not any of those things. But here's the incredible thing. By faith, you were actually declared by God to be all those things. Perfect, flawless, faultless, beautiful, and good. Not because you've actually been those things. Not because I've been those things. You have been declared those things by the one who made the world and everything in it. And and can I say to you, if God thinks that way about you, does it really matter what your coworker thinks? Does it really matter what your neighbor thinks? I burned out half of my neighbor's lawns. I don't know what they think of me right now. I actually did walk around and apologize to each of them. I didn't realize when I did so, my top of my head was covered with soot. So I wonder why they looked at me so oddly. Um, But if the God of the universe who made everything, created you, designed you, says, has declared that you are beautiful and perfect and holy through because of Jesus, it doesn't really matter what anybody else says. And this, again, is all because of the kindness of God. So you have been declared obedient and righteous. Now you say, well, that sounds really good, but I don't know. It doesn't seem to mesh with verses 6 through 11. So let me read the next section. Paul says, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. 
But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. You see, he's trying to unite these two groups of people. For God shows no partiality. So this is really difficult stuff and um, it, it's hard to explain. I'm going to take a stab at it here, but Martin Luther loved Romans 1, just loved it. John Calvin loved Romans 5. I've not read anybody in history who loves this particular section I just read because it is really hard to understand and it is somewhat terrifying. Uh, it sounds like the Apostle Paul is saying, if you're good, if you do good works, you're going to go to heaven. If you're a good person, you're going to go to heaven. But that would actually contradict what Paul says all throughout the New Testament. In fact, Paul says in chapter 3 of Romans, just this very next chapter, for no one can ever be made right with God, this is Romans 3.20, by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. And then Galatians 3, Paul says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So what in the world is going on here? What does that section mean? There, there are about a dozen different interpretations of it. I'm not going to go through any of those. So let me just tell you one very prevalent interpretation. In fact, some have called the dominant interpretation is that Paul is speaking hypothetically here. And what he's saying is, if you could be good and you could do good works, then you would earn for yourself a place in heaven. Um, my problem with that is there's nothing in the language here that suggests that this is hypothetical. So... That may be a dominant view. I don't think it's the right view. Um, A second view, this is the one that I hold, says that the good works that Paul says are necessary for, for salvation are indeed necessary to the extent that they reveal genuine faith. The good works don't save, only Christ's works save and our faith therein, but our good works simply reveal our genuine faith. Or said another way, they demonstrate that our obedience is obedience done out of faith. Um, Don Garlington writes, a scholar and theologian says, the bottom line is, although the, the obedience in question entails specific and concrete acts, it must be remembered that the future justification of God's people is not made to hinge on, say, 51% or more of law keeping because obedience itself is a product of faith. And where true faith and love exist, there must be ultimate justification. All that to say, Paul's not saying here we're saved by our works. If he said that, he'd be going against what he wrote in every other letter that he wrote, and including this own letter, this letter later on. Paul is saying that our works, specifically our perseverance till the end, will reveal that our faith is genuine and saving. To break it down, maybe one more level, we could say that only obedience done out of love, out of gratitude for God's kindness, exposes a heart that's truly trusting in Christ alone. Now, this makes even more sense in light of how we started out this message. Again, the Jews and Gentiles who are at odds with each other. Um, The Jews in the first century Rome looking down at the Gentiles, the Gentiles who obey God not out of love, but because they thought they could secure for themselves because of their lineage or their heritage, a place in heaven. And Paul says twice in verses 9 and 10, it makes no difference whether you're Jew or Greek. 
all will be judged according to their disposition toward God, namely, whether or not they have faith that shows itself, reveals itself in obedience. Here's our final point this morning. God will show no favoritism on the day of judgment. Each person will be treated the same way. Each person will be judged according to one single criterion. One single criterion, and that is, have you received by faith the one God sent? Have you received by faith the one God sent? Doesn't matter if you come from a Christian home or you don't come from a Christian home. Doesn't matter if you come from established country or a developing country. Doesn't matter what color your skin is or your ethnicity. It doesn't matter what your status in society. These are all major deals in first century Rome. God shows no favoritism. He always judges rightly. He judges according to one criterion. Have you received the one that he sent? Now let me close by offering one more thought. When I explained to you what it meant to presume on or to show contempt for God's grace. I, I said that it has to do with believing that we're so good that we don't really need a Savior, you know, putting our hope and trust in other things. Well, there's another way that we presume on God's grace, that we show contempt for God's grace. And that is when we say to ourselves, I'll get right with God sometime down the road. I'll settle accounts with God sometime down the road. I'm not ready to surrender to His authority. I'm having too much fun right now. I'll, I'll deal with God later, but right now I'm kind of living my life. How is that presuming on God's grace? You have no idea what your life holds, nor do I. In my years as a pastor, I've had people in the church that I serve get hit by cars and die. Went to one lady's house three in the morning with another elder whose husband had been hit by a semi died instantly, 36 years old. I've had people, I've seen people die in car accidents that I've had to minister to, totally unexpected, of course. One guy in a church that I served got shot and killed in a Walmart, national news at that time. I've seen a number of seemingly healthy people collapse and die of a heart attack. One, guy, one uh, young lady who was, by all accounts, the most fit lady in the church, young, fit, out jogging, had a heart attack and died. Church I served in California of a group of teenagers. Four teenagers went out and uh, ding-dong ditched a, a, a house. The guy immediately got in his car, ran them off the road into a tree. Three of them died instantly. He's now just, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, was convicted, multiple life sentences. I was playing basketball at Valparaiso, Valparaiso University when I was the chaplain and there was a guy, there was a big, uh, some of you have heard some of these stories before in other sermons, there was a big landing mat, sort of a gymnastic th thing. This guy got up from the upper track, the elevated track, and tried to do a flip and land on the, the landing pad and missed it. Landed right on the, the gym floor. Blood coming out of his ears. He died within a couple of days. My point, I'm not trying to be morbid. Not, I'm not trying to employ, you know, scare tactics. What I'm saying is we don't know. We don't know. This may be my last Sunday here. Who knows what's going to happen next week? We have no idea what's going to happen in our lives. And if we say to God, I'll get right with you someday. I'll turn from my sin and trust you someday. That's showing contempt for the grace of God. 
If you've not turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, His death on the cross, sufficient for all of your sins, His perfect obedience in your place, you're showing contempt for the grace of God. So what I say to you is, repent and believe today. Repent and believe today. He will receive you. He will forgive you. He will welcome you into his family forever. And he will make you a brand new person. Indwelled by the Holy Spirit with a glorious future and the power of the Spirit even now at work in your heart and life. Repent and believe today. Let's pray.